So I had originally planned to have the second reading extended a little bit, so we'd include uh, verses 11 to 13, but somehow my change didn't make it into the bulletin. We're still working out some technology things. So here are the end verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. We have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts also. When I was growing up, there was a lot of excitement and optimism about the new millennium. Communism had fallen in Europe. America was enjoying an economic boom. It was easy to believe in the words of a famous book from that time that we were at the end of history. However, that all changed on September 11th, 2001. That day marked the dawn of a new era, but not the one we had hoped for. Rather, it began a new era of fear, suspicion, and revenge, of constant low-grade anxiety, uh, many of you probably remember the days of the scrolling feed on the 24-hour news networks that were reminding, that reminded us that the terror threat alert was still orange for months on end. There's a new era where international unity quickly broke down into distrust, where national unity quickly dissolved into blame. It was over half a lifetime ago for me, but... From my perspective, that was a defining moment of this world that we live in today. And out of that soil sprung new conspiracy theories, indeed an age of conspiracy theories, it seems. When I grew up in the 80s and 90s, conspiracy theories were usually reserved for the tabloids on the supermarket line, supermarket checkout, with things like aliens have landed in some place, or Elvis is alive. Now, relatively harmless ones. There were a couple darker ones. I mean, who, the JFK was always a popular one. But after 9-11, it was hard to keep track of them all. To name a few, truthers, birthers, QAnon, deep state, election fraud, and a very recent bizarre one involving Taylor Swift and the NFL. <laughs> Some research suggests that the same people who embrace conspiracy theories also have high levels of anxiety. Many of us have family members who have embraced such conspiracy theories, much to the detriment of their relationships. But conspiracy theories don't have to be about big things. When we get anxious, and as someone who's struggled with anxiety, when we get anxious, our brain can make up a nonsensical world. Whoa. Our brain can make up a nonsensical world that seems so true in the moment. We can believe untrue things about ourselves and about others. Things that seem so right in the moment but are so wrong. I wonder if that kind of false judgment false belief was at the heart of what happened between the church at Corinth and Paul. 
Paul had a major fallout with some members of the church there. He alludes to this with one person in chapter 1, but the plot thickens in chapters 10 and 11. He mentions several super apostles, religious teachers who have visited the church, not to build up the church, but to undermine him and the gospel that he's brought to them. They seem to have planted some conspiracy theories about him. He doesn't elaborate much, but he mentions that they preach another gospel, another Jesus. Perhaps they think that the Corinthians should be observing dietary laws found in Torah. Perhaps they think they have a secret esoteric teaching only available to a few. Whatever the case, the relationship between Paul and church is impaired by their acceptance of such teaching and their acceptance of what they're telling them, of what they tell the church about Paul. Trust has been broken. However, love is not. The beginning of our passage, Paul exhorts the church, be reconciled to God. First and foremost, be reconciled to God. Why? Because Jesus took on our sin, took on our sin, our brokenness, so that we could take on Jesus' righteousness, so that we could take on his right relationship to God and to each other. Before, where we had only had broken relationships with God and each other, Jesus was only in right relationship with his Father God. Where, where we cheerfully went our own way, believing that either God didn't care what we did or would not judge us for our actions, Jesus' posture was one of obedience to his Father's will. Even when he responded to his son's prayer in Gethsemane with silence. Jesus has taken our brokenness, our sickness, our addiction, our unhealth, our anxieties, our fears, so that we can live shalom lives. Lives of truth. Lives of right relationship with God and neighbor. Lives where the anxieties and fears that remain do not dictate how we live with God and our neighbor. When Paul reminds the church at Corinth, now is the day of salvation, this serves as a reminder to us as well. A reminder that this relationship is not just a one and done thing. It's not just a come to church thing. It is a whole life thing. This is the beginning of a new life, a life where we learn from our master, Jesus Christ, how to live, how to forgive, how to reconcile, how to hold and be held accountable, how to obey God. As people inclined to sin, we need that reminder again and again and again. In fact, I would suggest that that the majority of what we do here at church is remembering. We have to be reminded of what God has done for us. And we also need this reminder. The old sinful self has an expiration date. That is the truth. That is why we receive a reminder of our mortality this evening in the form of ashes. 
no conspiracy theory. It's a truth we all face. We all die. No amount of anxiety-fueled protection we place around ourselves will prevent that. But here's another truth. Death is our pathway to eternal life. In any case, we've already gone through the big death. In our baptism, we've already been buried with Christ so that we may rise with him. Luther writes that as baptized persons, we die every day through repentance and sorrow and rise up every day to serve God as a new creature, as a new person. And one day we will rise up for good to live and reign with Father, Son, and Spirit forever. That is the truth. For now, we continue our earthly pilgrimage. And today, at the beginning of Lent, Jesus reminds us that he has taken everything of ours so that we can take on everything of his. Our hearts are freed to be open to be reconciling hearts with God and our neighbor. Over these next few weeks in Lent, we will hear more about that. The sermon series is the title, Reconciling Hearts. We'll, we'll hear more about how God is constantly at work to reconcile God's self with us and to reconcile us with our neighbors. But I'll leave you with this. What if, instead of or in addition to giving up something for Lent, we took steps to heal an impaired relationship? We've all said and done things that hurt someone else, that broke trust, that created a breach. What would it look like to deliberately pray for that person? What might it look, look like to let go of hard feelings? Might it be helpful to reach out? In what concrete ways can we live out our call to be God's shalom community, practicing reconciliation and forgiveness with open hearts? God, after all, opened his heart to us in his Son. This Lent, we're reminded that because God is reconciled to us, because God's heart is open to us, we are freed to be open, to practice holy reconciliation. That is the truth. Amen.